The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up, giddy up, Wolfpack. This is Failure to Stop. This is the number one podcast for police meets society and culture. It's also the number one United States-related 911 podcast in Canada of America. Joining me now is Drew Breezy, and between he and I, we have over two or three years of 911 experience. Failure to Stop is a family of shows, however, and if you drop by on Monday, you'll catch a funny show called Off the Cuff with J. Darrell White. On Tuesday is Mystery and Murder and Mayhem with the audacious Andrea Uplate. Wednesday is Last Call with Deadleg Media. Thursday is Com Center with me, Jonathan Bates. I am the dispatcher here sitting in on the show tonight. Friday is the kind of how we uh, just kind of relax and blow off the end of the week and really kind of phone it in on a medium show called Just Failure to Stop. It's kind of so lame. It doesn't even have a full name. Uh, this is uh, Drew Breezy, who has the show named after him. Drew, how the heck are you? You're looking better. Did you finally get over your illness? No, I don't think I got over the illness. Like we're, it's going to be, uh, it's going to make people sick and tired of hearing how sick and tired I am. But uh, we actually got the throat culture back, and there was uh, some mysterious uh, bacteria at an abnormal level. So we're on uh, high doses of um, antibiotics. It's always bad when when the guy walks back in in the hazmat suit and hands the culture back to you. And <laughs> if the uh, patient care, if the bedside manner were that. Uh, attentive i think i would have been happy with that but no they weren't uh, I, I just got a phone call from some assistant that was like uh, we called in a prescription for you you have a okay you have you. you have an unusual disease called andrew baxter syndrome <laughs> <laughs> ah shit what are the odds of that <laughs> right at least it's okay. not lou gehrig's disease he's yes you, you, the irony of him dying of lou gehrig's disease was <clears throat> you're you're actually way more lucky than him despite what he thinks um <laughs> Today, so, day, day is the worst day, day, day <laughs> to do the I, podcast with John, John, John. I saw that uh, that skit on SNL where it's just Lou Gehrig's. I think it's Norm Macdonald where he's being Lou Gehrig. He's just like, could you believe this? You know, I have to die of this disease. I am so unlucky. I was I being sarcastic the whole time. Figured the odds. Before the show, Drew and I were reflecting on kind of how far we've come as a podcast because we were feeling good before the show started. And we were thinking about how many countless times it has not been the case where, you know, episode two, Drew was flying on an airplane that was being struck by lightning. <laughs> or like yep, episode 14, where I had just been in a, in a brutal car accident in Literally. which I am, I am still suffering emotionally and mentally. Uh, but we're feeling pretty good. We're feeling pretty loose, uh, which means uh, since you're a 911 dispatcher and if you're feeling good, that means we've got to bring down the house with some real world sadness. And that's what we do on, on Failure to Stop Cobb Center uh, is that uh, we take on the realities of what 911 dispatchers deal with. And it's often very funny and it's often soul crushing, but we're going to laugh John, the entire time. Please discuss you're the conversation that we had <clears throat> uh, where I taught you a life lesson like uh, my young boo boo. Uh, do you remember anything about? I that? don't remember you ever teaching me a life lesson. I remember you calling <laughs> right. me a dummy before the show. Yeah, I literally called you a dummy, and that was the only thing you hear, heard out of that whole paragraph. Well, the, the, we were having technical was, difficulties. That's why I heard you. you there me were three hundred words in that paragraph, and uh, poor Jonathan only heard 
one of them, and that was Dummy. Um, <clears throat> no, essentially, John was, uh, and he's right. We we we're discussing the format of the show in the sense that uh, we don't mean to bring everybody down, but you know, it is kind of like the big picture of being in the communication center. Uh, because you just get hammered with sadness after sadness after sadness. Uh, fortunately for everybody in uh, internet land right now, you can turn the channel, meaning, um, you know, I, we're just trying to demonstrate that it's not easy for the 911 dispatcher because they can't turn the channel. So oh. the, we're, this is more of an ode to them. So what we were discussing kind of was like, you know, at, at some point we got to just throw in something happy. You know, like maybe we can throw in something happy. And I had to correct John and say, no, it is our job to spread sadness and despair throughout the world. And and we will not stop until everybody is sad and traumatized. And uh, tonight is no exception, John. You, you think he's joking. I literally had like the worst week. And today was the best day because nothing happened. It wasn't a good day because like I saved someone's life or I helped someone. Just nothing happened. And all week long, it was just like, man, I can't believe I had to do some real dispatch shit this week. And then the next day, it was like, oh, man, two days in a row. And then like by Wednesday, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I can barely stand this. How am I going to face tomorrow? So, you know, you know, it's just funny that uh, you, you're completely overwhelmed by sadness. And, and every week, our show is kind of like that. But that's just what it's like to be an I one dispatcher. So obviously, we're doing it intentionally. Yes. Yeah, uh, we're trying to bring the world down. Speaking of terrible things, what's in the news? Uh, did you want me to cover the news, or I? I want you to be aggressive. Be be aggressive. With All right. Story. Uh, I'm going to throw up a picture. If you're listening later, then I'm sorry you won't be able to see it. But uh, as you guys may know, there is a war on police officers in this country. It is not the war that we at Failure Stop formed to fight. I am talking, of course, about the bees. Bees are after the police officers of this country. On the screen is a Los Angeles volunteer police officer who was attacked earlier this week by a swarm of fucking bees. Uh, Drew, did you have the clip of that? Yeah, no audio to it, so don't panic. But um, we'll narrate. I, I do it like. Hold on a second. I think I like that subtitle, though. It said, uh, you know, hopefully this guy's all right. But it says uh, he's desperately trying to swat him away. <laughs> The bees so, are all over. Look him. at that. It, it was caught on live TV, apparently. This poor guy, man. Look at him. I, you know, it's just all these bees. He's just try, trying to swat them away. and They're hungry for blue blood. They got a taste of it. They must have stung a cop earlier that week. Oh, he completely God. face plants, and it looks absolutely horrible. They're, they're actually dispatching paramedics to him. It says, the, the captioning say it's a scene from a horror movie. They're absolutely right. I know I've seen this on, like, season five of The X-Files or – the, that girl with or that movie with Macaulay Culkin where he gets killed by the bees. Uh, the reason why this is important to me is because I've been at war with the bees ever since I was a little boy. I was swarmed by a, a, a vicious cloud of mud daubers after I innocently stepped on their domicile, which they make in Ooh. the earth. And they, they swarmed all over me. And because my parents didn't super love me a lot, a neighbor had to come out and was uh, brushing the bees off of my face. And I convalesced to her house for you know, some unknown amount of time. And of course, we all know that, well, those bees that stung me died, you know, in the last century, but bees can communicate. They have communal memory. They, they pass down in an oral tradition of bee dancing, the tales of me. And so the bees are still sort of at war with me to this day. Uh, 
I'm going to I'm going to dispel some rumors about bees because when I have come out against the bees, I basically will say that you're either with me or you're with the bees. Like that's the state that we're at with the with the bees. And I, when I tell this to people, they're like, "Oh no, bees are what enable our plants to have sex with each other, and we need them to to do all this, and we need them for honey and all this." I'm like, first of all, if you are a true ecologist, you will know that all species of bee are invasive to North America. We brought them over with us from Europe from Europe as another form of scourge to the indigenous peoples here. It uh, is uh, it's why they call them colonies, by the way. They're exactly these are well, colonizers. It's, it's exactly why colonization was bad. It's exactly like the bees. So some some helpful tips about bees. Bees are vertebrates. They produce milk to feed their young. They are born alive. They possess a fully formed neocortex fur. They have three bones in their ears. They're intelligent. They're self-aware. They could use tools. They socialize. They can communicate. They have a complex, organized society, which outnumbers ours by many magnitudes. And their ongoing obsession of their brainless lives is just murder-suicide of human beings and especially police officers. And it is only happenstance of nature that they're ill-equipped to fulfill their sinister final destiny. And also just... Fuck, they're scary, and I just am so sick of the bees, and the bees are back around here, and uh, just death to the bees. Like I said, you're either with me or you're with them, and I, I implore you to make the right decision because they're coming after the cops now. Do you know which member of the team is uh, highly allergic to bees? Is it you? It seems like you have a fairly weak constitution, and so bee allergies would be something that you would possess. I hate to, I hate to do this to you, but bees nuts okay oh. we're gonna play the we're gonna play the voicemails first yes yeah, play some because because i just went <laughs> off on a 10 minute tirade about bees no it's gonna be heavy for the rest of the show trust me uh looking forward to uh to oh. hey boys keeper from one more and i'm out of here just want to say thanks for uh Chief having King. me on last week uh looking forward to uh tonight's show can't wait to hear what you're gonna throw at us but uh like I said, appreciate you and uh, all the help you guys have given us. And uh, hope you have a great show tonight. See ya. So that's Chief Keith calling to uh, wish us, uh, telling us to break a leg, which I appreciate. Uh, if you want to participate in this fun of uh, of calling us, leaving us a voicemail, or even calling live for God's sakes, you can call, you can get a hold of us at eight four eight com nine one one. That's very clever, but that's also uh, the numbers eight four eight two six six. 6911. Nice. nice. Okay, I'm seeing some pushback in the chats. They're saying, well, you don't need to worry about hornets and wasps. I will tell you, first of all, all bees are the same. And okay, so you're going to tell me that almost there's almost 100 different kinds of insects on Earth, and, and over a third of them are bees. And you want to say that this isn't like a complex ongoing thing. The government knows about this. Why do you think that we have beekeepers? Oh, good point. Good point. Right. Go on. Are the the next, bee, I was listening okay. to Kiefer. Are the are the are the beekeepers like the oath keepers? Are they a, a, a far right group? Okay, here we go. Hey, Consider. Not a law enforcement officer, but a former Marine. And you know, I just seem to think that society is going extremely well. I don't know why. You guys need to have the consider to tell us that it's not going extremely well. All right, guys, that's the end of us. Um, yeah, we'll just put it on pause until things aren't going as well. Um, 
Apparently, I, I'm pretty sure that was an aborted call. <laughs> Either he gets us or he doesn't, and that's. I, that's I think I even game. promised him we wouldn't play it, and then I forgot. <laughs> uh, as the French say, "Chacun a son goût," to each his own, which means death. Which means what? Death to the bees. Idiot Wolf Tech. This is your salty. Correction Sergeant Micah. So this week I've been working a lot of overtime, been working harder than Ugly Stripper, and I had a member of the Wolf Pack very nicely send me a message and ask me what it's like to be in corrections. To be. So I tried to answer it the best I could, but uh, really um, you have some good resources out there if you'd like to know what it's like working behind bars. They have, of course, uh, on being a police officer with Abby Ellsworth, she has a good episode with Jonathan Bates. Um, I've actually had people reference that to kind of understand what it's like a little bit. Also, uh, if you're on Patreon, there's hard time with Jake, John, and Abby Ellsworth as well. Um, Another good reference, if you'd like to learn what it's like for Uh, people in the corrections industry. So there's that. And I guess the positive thing this week too, is I've been catching up on not just hard time, but a lot of failure to stop. So I'm looking forward to the weekend here very soon in comm center. We'll see you all there. Stay safe. Comes up. Giddy up. So I just, I don't know if we even mentioned Patreon, did we a minute ago? We probably did. Um, All I can remember is bees. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I don't pay attention when you're talking. So uh, if we didn't mention Patreon, we should. Um, and even if we did, we'll just reiterate it because I'm telling you the, the content quality on there. And I'm not talking about mine. <clears throat> I'm talking about John's. And uh, he's uh, he's put a few short stories up, uh, one of which I thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning about, about you. Yeah. <laughs> learning about my own life uh, and the fact that it's a very fine line between meth and Uh, being a police officer so um just close so razor thin look it's worth the money just to hear that one story and and i'm i'm a quarter of the way through abby and john's first and and let's be clear they did that at three different times uh but first segment of three we left and then came back at a different time change wardrobe changes and everything and i'm I'm trying to get but she's always got the best questions like she's asking about prison gangs and and john you know was talking about sweat lodges while i was going through the wendy's drive-through so uh i can't wait to get through the rest of that and you shouldn't either you need to get over to patreon.com slash failure to stop get signed up a couple bucks a month Keeps the lights on here, keeps the ship afloat, allows John and I to engage in witty banter. It pays for the call-in studio, which nobody utilizes, and except for the people that call in. Except uh, for those that do utilize it, yes. Those except I, for the ones that utilize it, right. And and by the way, Micah, uh, congratulations. I have just promoted you to um, comm center captain for should, your participation. Yeah, he, he should at least be the captain around here. And uh, yeah, just circling back to Abby, she asks great questions because she's she's an outsider, okay? So failure stuff, we make all these shows for people that are first responders. But a lot of people like it because they're on the outside and it gives them a look of what it's like to be a police officer or a dispatcher or you know a correctional officer or a paramedic. 
or a nurse or a tow truck driver, you know, or any of those really essential, you know, first responder roles. And like, when she could ask those questions, she's asking those questions for you. So you'll be sitting there thinking the same thing. And because Abby's not, not any of those things, you know, she'll come up with a good question. And that's why it's fun to be interviewed by her. She's very intelligent too. Oh, very intelligent. And that's, I'm telling you, that's why I appreciate like, um, I, 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 that's exactly why I appreciate her perspective because we take everything for granted in, in law enforcement in general, in the first responder field and corrections and communications and law enforcement and firefighting and, you know, paramedic world, you know, well, let's, we, let's not go nuts with the firefighting thing. I mean, we have our own 10 code. Well, you know, the cooking and all that, but we, we have our own 10 codes and our own language and we just start throwing out acronyms and then we talk about blood and gore and then we all move on after we hug each other and the day is done, you know, and, and we, we often forget that, you know, people will probably be more empathetic uh, with us or what we go through if they actually understand what we go through instead of just hearing us bitch about it all the time. And and she asks very poignant uh, questions and, and uh, questions that need to be answered, you know, so that she can relay them to her friends and population. I, I just think it's so important for your friends and your families to hear stuff like the things that we discuss on here. I'm not trying to self-aggrandize, but the stuff that we discuss on here can be discussed at the, at the Thanksgiving table when people start saying, why didn't they just hang up? Why do, why do they have to ask so many stupid questions? You know, the answer to that now. And, and that's kind of what we're looking to do, but it's sometimes it takes the outside perspective to ask that question properly. Don't you yeah. think John? Yeah, I, I would say so. And you can catch her on uh, on podcasts where you find those on being a police officer. Obviously, she stretches the format to include people like me, but just uh, she's just fun to talk to. And uh, we've had some good collaborations. I know she wants to team up with you again. She says she wants to meet both you and me in person. She was sad she didn't come out to the meetup in Clayton. She actually asked me what you were like. And this is how I described you. This is not this is not a lie. This is how I described you. I said, yeah, you know, he's got a lot of quiet strength. He's like an old ironclad in a storm that constantly says fuck under his breath a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you could hear that. Uh, yeah, I could hear that. Remember, remember when, uh, remember, no, I won't tell the story. So uh, just in case. <laughs> I, I do remember the, the final, I think we were both getting sick. You were already sick, I think. And I was, I was getting yeah. sick. I think you probably got me sick. And uh, could be. I, I literally, I can't remember what I said, like, I, we were leaving and for some reason we were hugging possibly because we thought that this is, we were both dying and this is forever for sure goodbye forever. <laughs> and, and then, uh, so that everyone's saying goodbye to me, all the, all the Wolfpack fans and Eric, you know, is kind of looking down at his phone and kind of waving me away. And, uh, and, and you said like, please get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> I don't know. If and it was almost like person. when you, when you go visit grandma, at one of those crooked nursing homes and the orderlies are all around, she goes like, oh yes, we had lemon candy today. And when the orderly goes out of the room, like they beat me and steal out of my purse. You know, it was like that. I, I, I remember it different. I remember uh, giving John a big hug as we were parting our ways. And I, kind of put my head on his shoulder because he's a tall fella and I said something to him and it was probably very poignant because it came from my mouth and your heart first in my heart and my soul and it was under my breath and uh you go um you left and then (laughs) 
And then and then after I was gone, you were all thinking about me and wondering what to do now that I was gone. And no, 15 or 20 back. minutes later, you got a text saying it was very loud in there. I don't I didn't hear what you said. And I replied, yeah, that is probably the most ironic thing I have ever heard, because I did say something like, you know, the one time I didn't call you a dummy. Yeah, you know, I, like I deserved it because uh, because technically being a dummy means you can't hear, I think. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> is that a mute? I, my, uh, you know, not to bring up old wounds, my ex-wife, uh, my, you know, she was a uh, vision teacher. She, she taught the visually impaired. And anytime we discuss that in an open forum, I might have told this story before, but anytime we discuss that in an open forum, like if I introduced her, yeah, she she teaches the visually impaired. They would always say, do you know sign language? And she would be like, I happen to know sign language, but the kids that I teach don't see it. You know, they don't, they don't use sign language. The visually impaired kids use Braille. That's pretty insensitive when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it actually really be- insensitive of them because they don't have that sense. So they're being insensitive. <laughs> uh, they're just being dumb. Here's the last uh, voicemail. Hey, John, this is Thad. I just wanted to tell you you were doing an awesome job on Failure Stop Com Center and that your beard is epic. Oh, yes. This is so awesome because last week I had some kid telling me that our show's boring because all we do is talk. And like today, like he definitely has a point because we're at like almost 23 minutes and all we've done is talk and we've not educated. God forbid we talk on a podcast. But yes. So let me let me ask you this. Uh, How many calls like that of me have you not sent me to to download? All right. We're going to move on. I obviously send uh, you all of them if we send, if we're getting ones where people are like, I don't think we need pod, we don't need failure to stop comp center. <laughs> and then obviously sent you every single message we get. That's that's true. We're, we've we've hit the bottom of the barrel when we're uh, basically playing the ones where people hate us. Where it's like a guy took an ambient and he doesn't, he doesn't like our show and so he called us. That was literally what we did. All right, it's time to get heavy. Put your game faces on. And I, I'm not like, listen, we, we say this all the time. We, we talk, we not quasi joke, but like we say, look, we're, we're going to interject some very um, kind of uh, quippy or humorous things into a very desperate situation. This is no exception tonight. I, I'm not going to attempt to be witty or funny during this thing. It is going to get very heavy. And I'm telling you this, uh, and, and I do mean that that's, that's what we were trying to do is kind of convey the fact that the dispatchers don't have the choice. So though you do, and I appreciate you hanging in here and I, I'm sure John does. And that first Marine doesn't, but, um, <clears throat> speaking of Marines, uh, I want to play something for you to kind of set the tone for tonight because it deals with military first responder and uh, medical professionals and their mental health. And it deals with the fact that the system is broken. We did the whole uh, breakdown on the big show, as we call it, uh, about Jordan Neely last Friday and and uh, um, Daniel Penny, who is the Marine that put him in the chokehold in the New York subway. And it's my theory that the, the mental health system potentially has failed both of them, more so one than the other. And then as a result, one of them is, is deceased. And, you know, I'm not saying that Daniel Penny is mentally ill or I'm not, I don't know that, but I, I do know that the, the uh, healthcare for returning combat veterans and we're in that era because we had two, you know, operation in uh, OEF and OIF uh, and all these other, you know, very um, traumatic war events. 
um, we're seeing it. And then, and then they get into our profession, they get into law enforcement or dispatcher or firefighter or whatever. And they're re-traumatized because they're seeing, they're already dealing with the level of PTSD. And then, you know, it just starts, it's the, the accumulation of the trauma. So I'm going to play this video. Some of you have probably already seen it. I've uh, pulled this from the uh, Instagram page of Tom DeBlass, but it's a, it's a gut-wrenching, plea from a member of our military. Seven times, seven times over the course of the last fucking six years, dude, the VA has continued to let me down. Fuck. I just want some fucking continuity and care with mental health providers. (laughs) What the fuck? These doctors keep quitting, they keep switching. And then the one doctor that I really liked, who talked me off a fucking ledge the last time, uh, refused. I had a split because they fell out of network and then they came back into network. So I went the last two years dealing with my own demons myself and trying to hold it to fucking together. And then come to find out. It's it's like May, May, it's like late May, and he denied he denied taking my case back, April fucking twelfth, and I'm just finding out, dude. And now I gotta go back to some new fucking doctor, and then I gotta open fucking Pandora's box again because they're gonna want to know everything, and then I'm gonna have to live through work and do that for a fucking month. I just wanna. I just want some fucking continuity at care, dude. I'm fucking so tired of it. I just want to be able to talk to the same fucking person and have the same individual manage my goddamn meds. Been off my off all my medications for fucking two years. I've been doing it on my own, man. I'm just fucking white knuckled. I'm gripping. Jesus fuck. Jesus, I'm tired of it. It's not a lot to ask. I just want to be able to talk to the same person and not continue to have to retell these fucking stories that torment me. <laughs> I, I fucking get it now. I really do. But I, I get it. <laughs> Dr. Bennett McAllister in Port Charlotte. <laughs> fucking... <laughs> just, and it wasn't even him. It was his PA that I really liked. Dude, I like... He talked me off a fucking ledge. He... <laughs> I just want some continuity of fucking care. All right. So very heavy stuff. And and uh, look, you know, uh, I, 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 let, let me just throw a few observations your way, John. And I like you, you don't even need to opine if you don't want. But that's a fucking man's man. And he is reduced to a slobbering snotty mess on the side of the road yes his hands are quivering and his you can tell his body is quivering he's at he's at the end of himself and uh honestly my impression of it and i'll let you take take this drew because like you you were in the air force but uh him can pouring this out for this camera it's probably the best therapy that he's gotten in a long time um and this is it this is as good as it has gotten for him it's just explaining how bad his care has been it's a but it's true. It, I see it truly as a plea. Like, 
So, you know, where this guy probably, I don't, I, I can't say probably. There are a lot of people in the, in the first responder profession, and there are definitely a lot of people in the military profession that, you know, will throw around terms like, just suck it up or don't be a pussy or um, because it doesn't trauma doesn't affect people the same way. And, and it doesn't, you don't have to, you know, what's catastrophic to one person doesn't mean it's not catastrophic to another person. And we're talking about your brains. We're talking about like, this is how your, your, your nerves work. Or I mean, literally John pointed out that his hands were shaking. His whole body was shaking. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a tough dude. He's a, obviously he's in the gym a little bit, but you saw that self touch gesture where he's right in the middle of talking and he starts spinning his ring. He's, which to me is encouraging. He's, he's thinking about his wife here. He's thinking about like, you know, this is soothing to me, whether he knows it or not. And, <clears throat> he's not asking for much. And, and this has been the lament. I, I can tell you as far back as, you know, my mother is uh, May 23rd is going to be 92 years old. Her, her older brother uh, was uh, all of her brothers were in the war, uh, bad alcoholics, usually uh, two of the three of them, at least uh, one of them had both of his legs removed. So, I mean, for the rest of, you know, his adult life, he just sat in a wheelchair. Uh, he had had several strokes. So, you know, he just sat in a wheelchair and drank beer all day, just like born on the 4th of July, except he was really old, you know, to, you know, to me, but uh, a product of the VA, it's just another, this has been going on for centuries. And this is not like when you go into the comments of that thing on Tom DeBlas's page, it, it gets into like, well, thank you, president Trump for, you know, and then it turns into Republican and Democrat, this guy doesn't want to hear fucking Republican and Democrat, and I don't want to hear it either. This guy wants continuity of care. He wants the, the ability to see the same doctor because, like he's saying, it's not about being a fucking prima donna here. He just doesn't want to have to reopen old wounds. He wants to tell the story once and get better. And he's going through the motions. And, you know, I used to teach in the academy all the time, like, we don't have patients as cops sometimes. So, you know, we're dealing with a whole population that has returned from war. So in driving down the street, you see that red pickup truck at two in the morning and a bag starts tumbling across the street, rolling across the street in the wind, like a, a plastic shopping bag or whatever. And they jerk the wheel. They're, they're just freaked out. They're, they're just a little like jumpy or edgy. And you don't know you know, obviously that, but you pull the guy over and he, if he gives you that as a reason, you might want to start taking that at face value instead of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me your license and registration. Uh, have you been drinking tonight? Or because that sets off a, a whole fucking measure of um, like just PTSD, like um, tunnel vision. Like I, I saw a guy melt down over a simple like fender bender, neither fender was bent by the way, but he was just so angry. And so just because the person that he bumped into, by the way, was from somewhere else. So he, he resented her being here. Uh, I, you know, I would put my life on the line for this country and blah, blah, blah. And he was inconsolable and just so fucking angry and ready to punch anybody and you just couldn't break through and i just see that cement 
I see that cement around him. I see that cement around that guy that we just saw in the video. I see the cement around so many first responders that are like, I'm okay. I just need to fucking, I just need to slow down the drinking a little bit. Yeah. She kicked me out again, but everything's going to be okay. It's probably not going to be okay until you get it addressed. And we can't get it addressed until we get proper care and it's bleeding over into our profession because it's all privatized for us. Unfortunately, the VA is a mess and hopefully we'll get it straightened out. Now I'm saying all of that as the setup to tonight's story. I don't want you to think or look at this as just another police shooting, just another uh, guy with a gun taking somebody hostage. Um, And I also want you to keep in mind when we have things like veteran court or drug court uh, for people who are, you know, they need specialized care. They need specialized attention. It's, it's not necessarily them being a criminal. It's not the, it's not their soul talking. Their soul was lost in the war. It's whatever has come back. That's doing the talking. That's, that's taking the drugs. That's taking the, you know, the drinking too much or whatever. And this is in part in tribute to one of our own staff members who, you know, without putting all of his business on the streets, he just put it up on the screen. One of our own guys has lost faith in the VA and and he's in a tremendous amount of pain constantly. He doesn't sleep normal, um, you know, whatever normal is. But so with that in mind, that's why I'm painting the picture of of what we're going to share tonight. Um, John, do you have anything before I read the story of what happened? Yeah, just uh, for those of us that were not in the armed forces, I, I want to encourage you to watch. There's a video on YouTube with Kevin Smith, who's from Clerks, and he's a director and he's a comic book guy. And I've been, been very prolific over the years, but he released a video recently, and I had the pleasure of watching it. It's about half an hour long, and I encourage you to watch the entire thing. But he talks about what trauma really is. And if you're not in the military and you feel like, well, I can't relate to these guys at the VA, just know that. This is kind of how he discusses it, and I'll be brief. But basically, you've got a part of your brain called the amygdala. It's your uh, the reptile part of your brain. It's your fight, flight, freeze part of your part of your brain, and all that is is like an on-off switch for responding to trauma about whether or not you're protecting yourself, you know, through one of those methods, and how uh, he went through some traumatic experiences in his life. Uh, that I think every single person can relate to because he's been through some stuff that most people have been through. But uh, he says, you know, this this is how this changed me. This is how it affected me. And this is how it eventually got me to this very, very bad place in my life. And so I encourage you to look that up on YouTube. Like I said, you guys have dispatcher skills. You can just go seek that out for yourself. But if you want to know what trauma is and how trauma works, and uh, I encourage you to watch it because I'm one of these guys where, you know, like I have to deal with stuff at my job. And one of the ways that I deal with that is by minimizing. And I say the stuff that doesn't happen to me is a big deal. And very recently, even even this year, I've just like, you know, I get so sick of everyone describing everything that goes they go through as trauma because it seems like everyone's a victim. So no one's a victim. Well, that's obviously that's what happens when everyone in our society claims victim status. Right. It it distracts from people that actually have real problems. So but when uh, you go through something in your life that activates, you know, that part of your brain and you go into that defense mode, fight, flight, freeze or whatever. Uh, then you're experiencing trauma. And it doesn't matter if you're being called a bad name in a, in a social situation or if you're getting blown up in Baghdad. I mean, uh, your brain your brain just responds to trauma. And so even if you're if you're dealing with something and you think like, gosh, I don't have it as bad as, as these Marines, as these soldiers, as these airmen, uh, just know that uh, 
you know, maybe you just need to worry about what's going on with you and take care of yourself. But uh, I have gone on too long about this, but look for that Kevin Smith video because it will completely change the way that you think about trauma and the way that you think about uh, mental health care. And it was uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, video that he put on. Drew, go ahead and uh, let's start talking about tonight's case. Yeah, we can. I, I just want to add real quick, The uh, you all know I'm a big, huge fan of Dexter Pitts. I have Dexter Pitts pajamas that I wear to bed often. Um, and he was in a uh, very poignant documentary on HBO before he was, you know, before he was part of this family, so to speak. I mean, um, and it was it was produced and kind of narrated by James Gandolfini, who played Tony Soprano. And Dexter talks about a lot, a lot in this book. And uh, I remember watching that before I even knew what, you know, like who Dexter was or, and, you know, it's a surreal moment getting to meet the guy, but um, just, just bear this in mind. Um, and when you're having these conversations at the dinner table, at the Thanksgiving table, like I talked about earlier, um, some of these guys are dealing with either police trauma, firefighter trauma, whatever, or war trauma, and then police trauma on, uh, on top of that. And what, what, Jonathan was just talking about in the Kevin Smith doc was the, the reptilian brain, the fight or flight response. And what your fight or flight is trying to do is prevent you from being re traumatized. That's all it's doing. It's it's so when anybody tells you that the cop had an itchy trigger finger or that they uh, you know, they got tunnel vision very quickly or whatever, this is a product of that. And this is why I think it is so important that we talk about this. Like this is for the profession, for the good of the profession and for the good of the community, for them to understand that we're not just out there hunting people down. Um, that's a foolish notion. And if, hunting people down by the color of their skin is an even more foolish notion. But a lot of this is trauma response. And let's be frank, we, we can't we can't have it both ways. So a lot of this black on black crime that we talk about or crime in the inner city is emotional trauma response as well. It's the same mental health system and it's the same brain. It's the same lizard brain. So with that, let's, let me just talk about what, uh, what this guy, what was behind this guy. Uh, the, the title of this family, uh, it's an article on Yahoo family, a man who Stockton police shot ki and killed said he was a veteran and he had mental health struggles. So my heart goes out to this family. My heart goes out to the baby girl that he had um, that he left behind uh, let me see if I can find her. I know I have her somewhere. Um, so this is him. Um, my heart goes out to his mom and dad and stepdad. Like he, he had brothers and sisters, I'm sure, or whatever. And, and, you know, everybody around him that loved him, his wife. And, um, so we're not doing this from an exploit of purpose. It's, we're doing this to open the conversation up a little bit wider, maybe. Uh, but in 2012, he was, um, bunkmates with a guy named Tyler Baxter of all things. That's my actual last name. And uh, they were army combat engineers. They were good friends. They were bunkmates and they weren't speaking. They were, uh, they were deployed together, but they had a, they had a brouhaha. They had a little brawl. Um, so <laughs> they had a fight, you know, the night before I, I'm sure uh, I've never been, I, I've been to Saudi Arabia, I've been to Egypt and Jordan, but I'd never been part of Desert Shield or Desert Storm. I had never been deployed. Uh, things get, you know, a little cramped uh, when you're overseas like that and uh, tempers flare and things happen. Um, but after six months of uh, bunking together in a tiny room, they had grown sick of each other and they fought. 
uh, they fought boots and fists were thrown uh, and neither would budge. But uh, at one point during a mission, he was on foot in an area where a roadside bomb had just exploded and he couldn't see or hear any uh, an approaching platoon. And so desperate to catch his friend's attention before another potential blast, Baxter threw a water bottle at Alta Murano and signaled, get back in the vehicle. And just as he got back in the car, a thing blew up, an IED blew up. Um, and he said, uh, Altamira walked up, he, he him, gives me this pissed off looking face and he goes, thanks, brother. So this is not somebody that wanted to die. He was over in sacrifice of our country and he didn't want to die. He was thankful that he didn't die. He was saved by, by his buddy. Well, we fast forward to, uh, uh, to a couple of years later. And we're talking about January 10th at about 4.17 in the morning. And we're going to hear the chilling 911 calls of the people involved. And we're going to hear his desperate 911 call. Um, the, the shooting in this one, and, you know, that's how it ended, um, is not as graphic as, as they normally are, but it's probably 12 or 14 times more intense than they normally are. So l- let me just read what the screen says as it says it. And, um, we'll continue that way. But on January 10th at uh, 4.17, a citizen called the Stockton Police Department and reported um, that there was a man with a gun in the 3300 block of West Hammer Lane. And shortly after the suspect, later identified as Rico Ruiz Altamiro, called the Stockton Police Department saying he was armed with a firearm. He actually made a call. He then showed an employee of a nearby uh, store his gun and told the employee that he was going to take him hostage. Now, to the casual observer, you're like, okay, this guy's a criminal, blah, blah, blah. But wait, like, give it a minute. You know, as officers arrived, they saw Rico outside armed with a firearm. He was wearing body armor. So, again, another indicator that, okay, this guy maybe is a bad guy because he's holding a gun and he's got body armor on, which is a protective measure. Right. So you don't die. So <clears throat> crisis negotiators began talking with him. They tried to get him to put the gun down. And at one point he took off his body armor and he told the officers to take his life while he was still holding onto the gun. You'll see he was holding the gun to his head. Uh, an uninvolved motorist drove down the parking lot uh, and Rico walked towards the vehicle, pointing the handgun at the motorist. This is probably the saddest uh, he, that that motorist is probably the luckiest uh, guy on the planet, but it's actually probably one of the saddest things I've ever seen because um, it, it, you know, not, definitely not to Monday morning quarterback anybody, but w- would, it, would it have been avoidable if they had blocked the back entrance off or, you know, just a few questions, but it, 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 however it happened, it happened. And uh, five Stockton police officers ended up firing their weapons and they struck Rico uh, they administered first aid. Uh, they tried life-saving measures right there, but he died at the scene. There were no injuries to any officers or any of the citizens, but he did die while he was there. So they uh, <clears throat> initiated a multi-agency critical incident investigation. Uh, the investigators from San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office, the Bureau of Investigations, uh, the California Department of Justice, and the San Joaquin County Medical Examiner's Office all joined together. Um and they investigated this thing to make sure that um, th- it was a justified shooting. Um, justified in this case is heart wrenching, is gut wrenching. This is what was recovered at the scene. It's a picture of a forty uh, caliber Glock and some body armor. The the Velcro is ripped like he took it off. 
So you're about to hear excerpts from 911 callers. What we, you know, John uh, pointed out to me before we even went on the air. There is a suicide hotline known as 988. If you're feeling any kind of uh, suicidal thought or you just need somebody to talk to, it's it, it, there is no shame in the game. Um, I've dealt with somebody recently who was ashamed of like crying because that's not how they are. Um, uh, how else are you going to get that bucket in your heart to dump out? You, you got to let it dump out sometimes. And calling a suicide hotline is not mean. Uh, you, you don't qualify if you're not suicidal. You can still call. Uh, here in the Tampa Bay area, we have something uh, known as 211. Um, which is the crisis center hotline is the greatest resource for cops. It's the greatest resource for any civilian going through a crisis. Um, but I would encourage you to call that. There's a national uh, law enforcement hotline as well. A blue by, crisis by, all, by all means, call before you're, you're, you get to that point. If you're thinking about harming yourself, if, you, if you're thinking anything like, you know, who would hurt less to be dead, if you're thinking anything like that, don't wait until the gun's in your hand. Don't wait until you're already at the point of lethal means. There's a different way that we can handle this. Don't think your problems are too big. There's people that want to help you. There's people that, that care. Okay. I'm one yep. of them. And don't, don't wait until you get to that point, please. Yeah. And I like, and this is speculation on my, on my part, but, um, but I, I, I'll share with you freely. Um, if you've got the preconceived notion that uh, soon I'm going to die, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. Um, and you start to feel like you're getting shit hammered drunk. Um, I can't tell you how many Budweiser suicides I've responded to. In other words, if they had been sober, they probably would have talked themselves out of it. But the fact that they lowered their inhibitions by drinking into oblivion uh, probably helped precipitate the suicide. It made it less painful for them. And I think, I think that this may have had a, been a factor in this uh in this case, but you're going to hear from the 911 call. Yeah, this is emergency. Um, I'm on Hammer Lane. Uh, some guy just is on with a weapon. Told me to call 911. I'm sorry. Um, I'm on Hammer Lane at Chevron, and a guy, a guy is on with a weapon. Said call 911 for him. Okay, which um, Chevron are you at? On Hammer Lane by I five. By I five. Okay, and this person came up yeah, to you. Yes, he said call 911. Pull out his weapon. So I'm about to leave right now. I'm not safe. But can you um, please send somebody? What what type of weapon did they have? Uh, it looked like it was a, a Glock 45. Okay. And he told you to call 911? Yes, he pulled it, pulled out his weapon, said he shot with a weapon. 911's the address emergency. Yeah, I need you guys to come to me right now. I'm sorry? I need you guys to come to me right now. Where are you at? I'm at. Uh, I'm on Hammer Pass I five on the uh, uh next to the budget there to talk about the Jack in the Box. Are you in the Jack in the Box parking lot? Um, yes. Okay. What's your name? Uh, no, I just need you guys to come to me. I'm 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 armed. Okay. What type of car are you in? Twenty two white Toyota Caravan. Okay. Why are you crying? What's going on? <laughs> it doesn't look fucking bad. I just need you guys to handle me. I need you guys to come and do it for me. Okay, what, what's going on? No, I need you guys to come do it for me. I can't do it myself. 
there's a question in the chat. So is this the same guy that was on the video earlier? And no, this is not. This is something completely separate. This happened in January. That thing, that video I showed earlier just happened the other day. Um, uh, just some observations, though. This guy, uh, I don't know if she caught it when he said it. And obviously, we catch it now because we know the outcome. But he said, I just need you to fucking come here and handle me. I can't do it myself, which is an indicator of he wants to commit suicide by cop which is a term i cannot stand but this is exactly what this is and he uh i, I think some of the red flags in this um there was a uh, an incident where uh it, it's it talked about in the yahoo article how his wife said that he had been involved in some kind of um recent uh injury or something a head trauma and then they were kind of split he had been uh, drinking more and more he was at a bar and he got a room at a budget in which is the budget in he just discussed and I, I don't know what you know is the civilian population or what but i'll tell you uh generally when people want to kill themselves they'll check into a cheap hotel to do it because they don't want to ruin their car they don't want to ruin whatever they're going to leave behind or whatever uh so suicides in hotels are a little bit more common than you would think it's just that, um, you know, it's probably a little bit more discreetly investigated because uh, for, uh, you know, for some obvious reasons. John, do you have anything? Uh, the first call on there where the guy says, you know, I, I, he, he, uh, he, he says, you know, uh, there's a guy here with a gun and he's telling me to call 911. He's armed. It's so confusing to the dispatcher because it's like, well, you know, is this a robbery? Is this an active shooter? What, what the heck's going on? This is an unusual situation. You can tell she's a little bit thrown. And finally, he says, you know, I'm safe. You know, is it OK if I go? Because, like, obviously, he should leave the scene. If he's safe, he should, keep, you know, keep that going. He should definitely leave the scene. Um, but what that is, is that's going to hugely clue you into what happens. And this is not something that I would realize until after the fact, unfortunately. But it's just there's really only one person in danger there. E even with knowing now how it turns out at the end, I don't believe that this guy at any point wishes harm towards anyone else. He's just creating the situation to where uh, the police can come to him. Dispatcher asks some pertinent questions. What kind of weapon does he have that's going to affect law enforcement response? If he's got a rifle, obviously that changes the entire situation. It's going to change how they can approach him, how they would do that, versus if he's got a pistol, his effective range is a lot closer. So those are just some, some regular questions. But when he comes on the line and he's crying, it could be so difficult because you want to give that empathy but you also, you don't want to sound condescending or, or overly sweet or like you're playing them. Like I've had a, a suicidal person once where I'm going through the script and I've mentioned this on the show before where I'm like, you know, do you have any thoughts or plans of harming yourself? And, you know, and she, she has just been through this so many times. She goes, no, I know what you're going to ask. No, this, no, that. And, and I said, like, I can tell that, you know, th that you've been through this a few times. And I saw on my CAD that, you know, on my computer that she has indeed called. I'm like, I'm like, you know what? It's my job to keep you on the phone and talk to you. I'm ready to listen to anything you have to tell me. I don't know anything that you're going through, but just, just talk to me. You know that, it, that I'm going to try to keep in the line until they get here until they get to you. I can't do anything to keep you on the line. It's entirely up to you. And sometimes by leveling with them, you can reach them. But when they're at this point, when they're crying, they're at their lowest point and as a dispatcher, you you have no idea what the best thing to do is, and you are just struggling. You're just hoping that the units get there in time. Sure. Um, yeah, a great point. Uh, uh, something to look out for in a loved one or 
if you're dealing with something like that is that that low you know that low crying that uncontrollable crying that's that's it that's rock bottom i mean and and we've talked about this on um the show before on one of the other shows but you know some of us have ex- experienced that you, you you just know it like you know when you hear it it's kind of like smelling a dead body for the first time you just kind of know that but he did say um it doesn't fu- what he was saying is it doesn't fucking matter just get here and just like john said a second ago um trying to reason with him is not necessarily um you'll see what i mean in a second when the officers try to reason with him yeah i'm holding hostage at gunpoint right now where are you at by rico Okay. He just turns fucking easy. Where are you at? Hammer Lane. Yeah. What? Okay, I'm gonna keep you on the line. Okay, where are you calling from? Hammer Lane. Hammer. Yeah. Apartment what? What is your name? Oh, I'm gonna keep you on the line. Okay. Yeah, well, you ain't got no point now. You ain't got no story time, right? Are you guys inside? Yes, he has me hostage right now at gunpoint. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, is he on the phone with somebody? Hey, is it the name of the business? What's the name of the business, sir? Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. What is it? What? Can I back up or? Okay. Oh, there they are right there. He's, Rico sees them. I'm going to keep yeah, you going. Rico's in here. He's coming out. He's coming okay, out. Okay. He said that he's coming out. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Hey, um, so she's picking up on what is being said and she's trying to relay it and and john uh, we, we've talked about this before too the lull of the midnight shift and then force this happened at 4 17 in the morning so you're thinking in an hour and 33 minutes i'm going home uh and all of a sudden this gets thrown on your plate and boy are you awake at that point yeah it's uh jarring because sometimes you could be on the downward slope and you're just kind of like you're almost kneeling out the clock and the game will be over and then all of a sudden you've lost possession of the ball hey you know it's it's a uh, it's a crude analogy for a, a terrible feeling, but one thing I'll notice uh, is, you know, something that, that Tansy is excellent at. It's when, he, when you're watching body cam footage is uh, he knows what the officer is thinking and feeling based on stuff that he can hear, like uh, the tactical breathing. Uh, this dispatcher is typing louder and faster as the situation gets worse. And uh, that's something that I've done before, too, because her brain has just thrown it into sixth gear to try to get information out to these guys. And part of that is a sympathetic to response to she wants the units to get there faster. If she her 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 whole information gathering, processing and disseminating thing. It's all it's all a muscular thing because she's typing. And so she's actually going faster with her hands because to her, subliminally, at least on some level, if she types faster, if she speaks faster, if she comprehends faster, the units will get there faster. It's a trap that all dispatchers fall into. And it's why we feel absolutely helpless because it's like we are processing information. It's going out as fast as it's coming in and it's not fast enough for us. Drew, go ahead. But let's talk about that for a second. And this is why I say that dis- that's why it's proven over and over again that dispatcher trauma is no different than 
than any other first responder trauma because she's banging away at that keyboard louder and louder and louder because it's becoming harder and harder her, for her to see the keys because her adrenaline is spiking through the roof, which means her cortisol is shooting up, which means her sympathetic you know, nervous system is on fire, which means uh, her heart needs more uh, oxygen, which means she's breathing a little bit more. Sh- like it's no different. It's absolutely no different. The only difference is the danger, the presence of the danger. And she's like, just, just imagine yourself. Like when you were a kid, um, you know, the countdown to, to the shower, you know what I mean? Or the countdown to go take your bath, like, okay, six, five, four, you know, that just that's that feeling you start to get into like before you have to take off running into the thing, or, you know, even just watching an old episode of MacGyver, the $6 million man where, you know, he's like sweating and he's got to cut the red wire and then he's got to cut the blue wire and it's got to get the sequence right. And um, this is a stressful, stressful, stressful moment, but your well, body. And it's way more complicated than diffusing a bomb and snipping a wire. I mean, I say that not knowing anything about no, real it, life it, or ordinance disposal, but or medicine. As, you're, as you're listening <laughs> yeah, as you're listening and you're trying to get that information out, it's so frustrating because you can process information so fast, but obviously the stuff that you're typing, it populates on the screen at, at a certain point. It's not, it's not downloading into the officer's brain as fast as you're getting it in there. So and, uh, go ahead. So my point is like, as an officer, you know, you're going to get this adrenaline rush every time you pull somebody over. Like sometimes the hackles in the back of your neck stand up more, more than other traffic stops, but you can't see what you're getting into. And, you know, the, the same adrenaline, the adrenal glands start overproducing in the whole nine yards and you get a little bit of shaky or whatever, just to keep yourself honest. Or, you know, when you're getting into a harrowing, harrowing situation, you got your gun out and you're, you're begging with somebody to drop their gun or whatever. Your, your heart only has so many heartbeats and, and the adrenaline is speeding that heart up. And, and let, let's, what's the difference between that and the, the, by the way, sedentary dispatcher, who's just, who hasn't really moved a whole lot during the shift. And, all of a sudden this big adrenaline dump comes in and like the, the adrenaline becomes a sort of poison, like through their body, just coursing through their veins. And they're trying to keep everything straight because they don't want to, they're trying to save this guy's life. They're trying to make sure that the officers know everything that they can know. So they're not marched into their deaths and they're trying to communicate with one another. And then you got somebody probably behind you yelling stuff to you to ask and, it's a very, very, very trying time. So let's, uh, let's, you're, we're about to see the body cam footage. Um, this one, as far as I'm concerned, the, the officers, I, I think all five of them are probably like devastated that they had to do this. Uh, but I don't, I think they were put in a very bad choice here. So you're about to see the footage. This is one person. I got eyes on him. He's at a vest on. In front of a smoke shop. He's got a vest it's, on. it's rainy uh, and it's dark, very dark out, but the lights of the business are on and the lights in the plaza are on. So you got guys dressed in all black with their rifles out, kind of running He's all around, up empty. trying to get into position, but they're also trying to hands get to the tactical edge to see. He's got his hands can, behind his to see what they can see, uh, specifically him. He's got a gun. Keep your hands up! So now they have realized. Keep your hands up! He's got a gun. He, in fact, 
what he was saying no, before all that, no. and I was talking over it, but he, he was saying, it looks like he's, uh, he's putting his hands on his head. It looks like he's putting his hands on his head. Then it dawns on him. Oh my God. He's got a gun. He's got a gun. Don't do it. Keep your hands down, man. I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to shoot you, man. I don't want to shoot you, man. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. So you can hear so, him begging uh, yeah, him, don't, I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to shoot you. And so this is like the ultimate catch-22. You know, you're responding to a guy that wants to kill himself or he wants to be killed. And because the other people are in danger, you know, you've got a responsibility. We're always talking about policing to protect the majority because that's the job of the police. And so you're now, like I said, in this ultimate conundrum of having to comply with what this guy wants you to do in order to protect other people. Drew, go ahead. I suspect that, you know, just in retrospect, he probably had the body armor on because he didn't want the, he didn't want to be wounded. He wanted to be killed. So think it makes sense. Here's officers, uh, officer Hooper's uh, body camera. He's officer number two. So Officer Hooper is behind uh, like a metal uh, door of some sort. I don't know if their Bearcat is already out there or whatever, but he's he's holding deadly force on the guy. He's, he's got him in his sights. He's, he's following him with his rifle. And the guy is just pacing back and forth in the parking lot. You can see he's wearing khaki shorts or pants. And he's got the gun to his head, and he's got the um, uh, tactical vest on. It's green, you know, the tactical vest. Um and they're just yelling. They're pleading with them. It, it does get confusing also because, you know, you probably got five guys trying to save this one guy's life and you got one guy that wants to die and they're talking over each other and it's just, it's chaos. Like they're begging him not to do what they know he wants them to do. So here's uh, Kachalkin. Yeah, yeah, Officer Ch- Kachalkin. So he's trying to get on the level with the guy. He's trying to find something in common, and he has something in common. He played football with him in high school. But let's. this is why I said what I said earlier. You're not just reasoning with a guy who is hell-bent on dying. You are reasoning with what I would estimate to be an intoxicated guy who is hell-bent on dying. Possibly. Nothing is ever going to make sense to any – no one is going to get – through to that guy it's just it's very difficult to do unless you just by some miracle like you find a john or whatever that just happens to connect um he's he's irrational at this point 
and he's demonstrated that, but you know, the alcohol fuels it. And that's why I say the Budweiser suicides are probably the most heartbreaking because would they have done that if they were sober? And, and again, I'm speculating. I don't know if he was drunk or not. But. Well, he, he could be honestly so hopeless that he's at that point, too. I mean, you, you could be right about the intoxication thing. But I mean, uh, you can you can reach the point where he's at where you don't care. And everything seems cheap to you. Like if someone says, you know, we played football together, you know, he's trying to conjure up, you know, brotherhood, camaraderie, uh, surviving tough times together, a bond. Um you know, trying to draw a likeness to him. You could be at a point where you are so disconnected from other people that, it, you know, uh, case in point, he's got this uh, beautiful daughter and where he's at in his life, he can't think about being a dad to her anymore. He's so he's so past the point where he, he can't see that as a good thing. He can't see that as an option. He doesn't have that as a future. So when these guys are trying to harken back to, hey, we played football together, it, age it can just seem cheap to him he's just he just tell tells he can tell that it's a stalling tactic or whatever it is um generally time is on your side if you're negotiating with someone you're kind of hoping that their emotional high comes down that they can regain their equilibrium we've talked about that a few times on the show but i believe that you can be so despondent that you just don't give a shit about anything and i i think i think that's possibly the heart of suicide drew go ahead i i think you're right about that i i mean i i just i I happen to think he's irrational and unreasonable because he might be intoxicated. Just something I read earlier that led me to believe that. Officer Grauman here, body cam four. So they're discussing a plan. They're talking about the shield and getting it up to the window. Stop, stop, stop. Okay, so what you can't see if you're listening to this is off to the left. The, the, the officers are in a stack on the driver's side of a car. One is using the, the engine block as kind of the, you know, so they have the door open. One's using the engine block as his um, his cover, so to speak. And they're stacked. There's a guy behind him with his hand on his shoulder. There's a guy behind him with his hand on, his, uh, on that guy's shoulder. And off to their left, there's a series of U-Haul trucks. And emerging from the U-Haul trucks is a white pickup truck. So now it's off to their left. So it would be off to the gunman's right. So what they have to do is they, they've discovered now that there was an opening somewhere or this car was parked and they're trying to, it's trying to leave the parking lot and it doesn't know, you know, the driver doesn't know what's going on. They shine their flashlight at the truck to get the driver's attention and they're yelling, stop, stop, stop. So don't come around the corner because you'll be confronted face to face with a gunman. Unfortunately, he'd been a little bit, he got a little bit too far before he realized what was going on before he, he could stop. So this again is the, um, I, I just, I, I can't imagine they're begging and pleading this guy. They may think that they're making progress, whatever happens. And then this happens and it just sends the whole thing into a tailspin. Back up, back up your car. Back it up. He's, he's pointing his gun at that citizen. He's pointing his gun. So you don't see what happened, but just that fast, uh, somebody in the back gives the, the warning. He's pointing his gun at that citizen. Now, let's. we've talked about this many a time on the show. Um, 
the imminent threat of death or great bodily harm to yourself or someone else is uh, the criteria for deadly force. And that's exactly what we have here. The officers aren't necessarily concerned about their lives at this point. They're holding deadly force on the guy. They're negotiating with him in an effort to try to keep him alive. He forces their hand by pointing the gun at the driver of the car that inadvertently slipped into the scene and they had to shoot him. So, um, you'll see if you're watching this, you'll see like very clearly, uh, they'll denote stay in the car. You can see very clearly circled in yellow here. The gunman is now pointing his gun at the white pickup truck. And then, um, they'll pan over in a second and they'll show the white pickup truck and you can very clearly see that the driver is just not is exposed. So they're trying to demonstrate here, like this guy was in danger. He, he, whether he could hear our commands or not, he was in danger and he didn't realize it. Yeah. It's tragic that uh, a situation like that, you know, when you, when you're in negotiations and you're, you're, you're trying to learn about, you know, all the things that can go wrong. You have it in this, in your head that if you learn enough, if you prepare enough, if you become a, a strong enough practitioner of your craft, if you devote yourself to it, you feel like, I can control all these variables. And then, you know, look at this, a car just drives through, you know, uh, we, we do, we do all this like digesting of like what hostage negotiations is like, you know, should I have a third party intermediary talk to this person? Is it helpful to talk to the family? What is it that's upsetting them? What is it that's helping them feel better? What, you know, what, what has helped them in the past? And so you go through like this, like almost, you know, psychological surgery on a person. And then it doesn't matter because a car drives through because you just, you can't control everything like that. And it's, it's so frustrating that, you know, that conceivably they could, they could have held out for, uh, you know, however many more minutes or longer or hours, hours indefinitely that there's some kind of hope there that they can maybe resolve it. Maybe the guy will get tired and just put his hands down and they can go get him anything, you know, but a car drives through. And now, so all these poor officers that had to do this, you know, they've got all this, what if, and of course the, the tactical backlash or the, you know, the Monday morning where you look at the film and you're like, well, why didn't we have a solid perimeter here? Or why didn't we check to make sure this was empty or whatever? And, you know, I, I don't want to even necessarily get into that, but it's just, it doesn't help with uh, feelings of, you know, guilt and remorse and, you know, this, this, this guy that they're trying to talk to that they can't develop a connection with at all. They're feeling connected to him. Okay. They're trauma bonding with him right now because they're like, Oh my gosh, I went to high school with that guy. They're trying uh, that, to save his life. That I mean, guy. Yeah. We're trying to save his life. I played football with him. So even though that, that the, the attempt to bond with him isn't affecting him, it is affecting those officers. And ultimately when they have to pull the trigger to save that citizen, it feels like a failure. Number one, like, because they had to do that, like they had to, they had to protect that guy. In, in a sense, it's a success because they've been, they preserved as much life as possible, right? It wasn't that the citizen died and then the suspect died or, and an officer died. Okay. They, they, they minimized loss of life to the extent that they could. Uh, but, you know, they're going to feel guilty about it, even though tactically speaking, it's, it's some degree of a win because they were able to minimize that. And it's, it's just, you know, preservation of life is their, is their number one goal. And, it'll still feel like a loss to those guys. And I feel bad for them. Yeah. I feel horrible for those guys. Um, and I feel horrible for the guy that was just so despondent that he kind of forced their hand. I mean, 
Um, well, that's it's destined. important that you say force their hand because this is just, you know, like we discussed with the Najee Seabrooks case, when someone is, they've barricaded themselves or taken themselves hostage in this case or someone else, they are in charge. The police are not in charge. The reason why the police are negotiating is because that is a special tactic when traditional tactics to resolve a, a criminal or other situation have failed. Okay, so this is literally a SWAT tactic. It's a special tactic to talk to someone because traditional police tactics to secure this scene and the suspect and to end the situation peaceably and quickly are not working, right? So the suspect is in charge the entire time. They're trying to regain that control so that they can take him into custody peacefully. But then the suspect takes his control over the situation and uses the force available to him, the deadly force available to him, and says, I'm going to get send it to this innocent person, this third party. That's when they have to assume control through the use of their own deadly force. Drew, go ahead. Um, I, I think that just about covers it. It's just uh, the, the, in closing, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. We pulled this from the Stockton Police Department uh YouTube channel. And as with all officer involved critical incidents, uh, the following type of investigations are currently active. It says uh, it's a multi-agency critical incident investigation and an internal departmental use of force review. I'm, I'm sure it's been concluded at, at this point. I, I don't know factually, but I would think that it's been concluded by now. Um, and so um, just as a general thought uh, to kind of close things a little bit, um, this would be a great opportunity to have a debrief with everybody involved and include those dispatchers because just for the reasons I mentioned a minute ago, it's not necessarily that they were in the middle of the danger, but their heart, they aged two years, just like the officers aged two years that night. And, um, you know, I, I can't stress enough uh, how important I think that is to include um, your uh, dispatchers in these, uh, in these, situations and these uh, uh what am i trying to say john the debriefs as yeah well. to get them involved because they they went through something too and you know the police officers you know they go through their own thing because you know they're the ones that had to pull the trigger they were on scene they're the ones who had to talk to the guy but you know the dispatchers gathering that information trying to get get help out there but ultimately being helpless themselves you know i think it was uh, maybe carly or amanda or another dispatcher who said you know ultimately you've got to rely on those guys you've got to trust them you say i've got this problem i'm going to send you to it which is another form of, of stress and possibly trauma when you're sending someone you know someone you work with possibly a friend someone you care about you're sending them into danger you say i have to give this over to you to resolve it because i cannot go do this myself and that's because i need to be here in this chair to do my job and what my job is is important and it can't be fulfilled by someone else so you have to trust someone else to go take care of that and by the way during this entire standoff uh, there's an EMS unit parked nearby. There's other units there. And they're worried that a police officer is going to get shot. And so they are sitting there waiting, like kind of what you said earlier with the tension building. They're just waiting for some kind of terrible radio code to come over, you know, uh, shots fired officer down, something like that. They're they're in a cold sweat that entire time that that is going on. They uh, don't want the suspect to get shot, but they're worried about their officers too. Drew, go ahead. Right. And then they, they can audibly hear gunshots. I mean, that's what's your instinct at that point? Like, do you run into you? Um, so let's end it on this. I, I just want to kind of cover this real quickly. It's nothing that I'm, but th there is this, uh, 
thing that's pushed by uh, the Mental Health Association. It's called QPR, Question, Persuade, and Refer. It's suicide prevention training, but QPR is just like CPR. It's it's easy to remember, but QPR stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer. If you're encountering somebody on the job or you're encountering somebody in your living room uh, or your bedroom uh, or you get a phone call from your significant other or whatever, and they're not feeling right, uh, obviously, then is the time to ask questions as in, do you feel like you're going to kill yourself? Do you feel yes. like you're going to harm yourself? Ask and that I, question. You're never going to incept the idea of suicide into another person. You're, they're not no. going to be, they're not going to be in danger. And then you say to them, are you thinking about killing yourself? And then you'd be like, well, that's just the right idea for me. That's something that I'm thinking. Yeah, like, oh yeah. I wasn't thinking about that until now. You, Thank you, John. You, you can take the pressure off of that situation and you can diffuse a lot of the roadblocks to that conversation by just simply opening the door. Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about committing suicide? If you, you know, and particularly if you just ask them, you, if you, if they don't give you an answer that's satisfactory or maybe it's a little bit withdrawn or held back or something like that's a huge indicator to what's going on with them. And I'm not saying like, try to like psych out your friends or whatever, but just attack the heart of the issue, particularly when their life is so important. There's no reason to beat around the bush about it. And if they're not thinking about that, they're going to tell you like, no, no, it hasn't got to that point. I'm fine. You know, but if it has, then it needs to get discussed right then. Drew, go ahead. But there's no shame in this. So like everybody's always saying that, you know, they're just like nothing drives me more crazy in teaching interviews and interrogations when I learn that the officer that I'm teaching doesn't want to offend somebody by calling them a liar, but they know they're lying. So why don't you just call them a liar? It's okay. Like if they complain on you for, and you've caught them in a lie, you're okay. You're not going to offend anybody. So questioning somebody who is suicidal is not offensive. You're just being blatant. You're being the leader at that point. And you're saying, are you feeling like you're going to kill yourself? Because I, I need to help you. I need to, I need to get there to you, or we need to do something to kind of get you off this path. So question, persuade them to seek yeah. some type of, uh, of mental health, but refer and, and make sure you follow up with it. And it's the, the burden is definitely not on you. It's, no. If you are going to help though, I mean, if you, if you feel the need or uh, this is just simply a, a manner or a mechanism of handling somebody who, who is suicidal. And again, knowing three numbers, nine, eight, eight, knowing two on one, knowing, uh, getting on your radio and calling or, or dialing nine one one in your cell phone and talking out loud saying, I don't, I don't know why you want to kill yourself. You yeah. know, just get somebody's attention to help you kind of, you know, talk that guy off the ledge, like our first guy. So, you know, just to wrap it up with a, with a neat little bow, uh, um, you know, the first guy, is no different than the, the the last guy, right? The first guy that we, we saw in the video tonight, he's no different than the the guy who just got to the point where it, it had bowled over. The, the, this guy is just trying to get right and he's trying to get things fixed and it's one roadblock after another. And it's just so frustrating to have to relive the atrocities that they've already lived or they've already had to explain it to two or three people, or you've already got a good groove going with somebody and now you got to try to explain it again. So I don't know what the solution is as far as the VA is concerned. Stay involved though. Uh, be supportive as a family member, be supportive as uh, as a, as a partner, uh, whether you're in uh, law enforcement or firefighter or dispatch, whatever, just, just be there. 
if, if your veteran friends are, are telling you things, if they're giving you things like, man, this is not working or this is, you know, I'm stressed out about this or I can't seem to get care. Like talk to that person. Don't disregard those, those little tips that, that stuff's going wrong. You know, it's like Drew said, it's not on you to fix it. You're not morally responsible for getting them out of that situation, but be a good friend to them. Like talk to them. And, you know, we talk about, you know, how you, we can refer you to 988, 911 and, uh, you know, question and all this stuff. That's all good stuff. Most, you know, a lot of people who are, are out there, and they're seeking professional help, which is a good thing. How many of them need that? But also what they really need is a friend who just shows up and shuts up and listens. Be somebody in that person's life where you say, you know, um, how can I best support you right now? And don't say anything. What's working for you right now? What's not working for you right now? Uh, and whatever they, whatever they tell you, just listen. And just don't try to interject. Don't try to don't try to silver line things. Well, like, well, at least, you know, you still have your health or uh, and and don't don't trick them with false empathy. Like, hey, man, I know what you're going through, because one time I went through this. No, just that's, listen. That, that's the wrong listen. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I think it's uh, just been a heavy night. It's kind of time to wrap it up. Listen, if uh, if you ever need anything from any of us, obviously give us a call. Yeah. Uh, if you want to leave us a voicemail until the next show we have, it's uh, 848 Nice. That's 848-COM-911. Tomorrow we're going to have uh, a great show on Eric and I. Uh, Eric may be in his new studio at that point. I don't know. Uh, but if he's not, working he will... at it literally at all hours, so he will text yes. me at 3 a.m. and he goes, I just finished standing. And I'm like, thanks, Eric. <laughs> he will I'm be covered in drywall dust in, inside and out, part. perhaps a light uh, silica uh, coating of uh, drywall dust on his I'm, lungs. I, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to him having black lung and him coughing just as much as you because yeah, he right. had to just rush to get his studio all completed. So which... tomorrow's uh, tomorrow's failure to stop. Please join in. I don't want to prime you with uh, sadness like John likes to do for this show, but uh, please join in. And uh, Eric and I are just literally going to cough at each other for an entire hour. And uh, we'll, we'll just acknowledge your chats. But uh, until then, until next time, uh, log on to Patreon, throw a couple bucks in the hat if you don't mind, and uh, take a look at at, uh, YouTube, I, I tell your aunt Sally to subscribe. Uh, we had, we've had a field promotion, Micah, captain Micah tonight, uh, Micah, I expect your aunt Sally to tell her 10 friends to, uh, get us towards 7,000, uh, subscribers on YouTube because we are teetering near the edge of that. Right. Right now we're at 6,969. So we're looking for nice. just a couple more to keep going folks. <laughs> All right. Until next time, John, Stick, Stick around. around. Take care of each other, everybody. Reach out if you need us, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Guns up, giddy up.